Strange Stories here, Season 7, Episode 3, calling this one Sold for a Farthing, The Story of a Sparrow. And I'm posting this on Christmas Day 2023. Well, I was in a charity shop in Hassex in Sussex, a shop I regularly go to as it always has a good source of unusual books. I bought a few, including a small book which I could easily fit into my pocket. It was only 72 pages. I think I was drawn to the cover in pea green. It was called Sold for a Farthing by Claire Kipps. It cost me one fifty. The book was published September 1953. My copy was the fifth impression, dated December 1953. So in just three months there had been five impressions so it must have been a bestseller. I bought the book as it described itself as a carefully recorded biography of a common house sparrow. Being a lover of nature and especially birds, I thought it would be one of those books that were bought but never read. However, I did read the book over a couple of hours and decided to make it into this podcast. Incidentally, going off track, I've been told of a van which travels from charity shop uh, to charity shops, to bookshops, to charity shops each week in Sussex and Hampshire, collecting books that have been that have more than one copy or have not sold over a given period of time, and these books are pulped. So please be careful if you are donating books. I think that when the book sold for a farthing was published in 1953 and became the bestseller. There was a religious aspect to the book. The title, for example, uh, the quote comes from the Gospels of Matthew, making the point that God cares for all life on earth. One of the ironies of the book is, was (laughs) there's a war raging around the world, so many dying, and Claire Kipps is doing all she can to save and care for a sparrow. The book has adverts on the back of the flyleaf advertising books by Patience Strong, whose poems appear in the popular press at the time, the poems being brief with a simple sentimental message about inner strength or the beauty of nature. The foreword of the book is by Dr Julian Huxley. He was the grandson of T.H. Huxley, the famous Victorian scientist, and Julian was the brother of the writer Aldous Huxley. Julian would be a controversial figure if he were alive today, as he described himself as a transhumanist, who thought eugenics could be used for the benefit of humankind, although he was much against the, any idea of a master race, as was happening at the time. Many of Huxley's ideas on transhumanism are now part of our everyday lives, from gene editing, abortion, IVF, to the acceleration of the extension of human life. We live depending on your politics in the shadow or the light of transhuman ideas. Claire Kipps in the prologue of the book says that she was persuaded to write the book by the poet and children's author Walter de la Mer. The book is dedicated to him as it was his encouragement that allowed the book to be written. Claire said that she was reticent about writing the book as she did not want to encourage others to keep wild birds in captivity. Claire said that she viewed the bird as an equal, a creation of God, an individual unlike any other worthy of observation, respect and love. Her aim was to call 
the bird as high as its capacities and gifts allowed. She wrote the book whilst the house sparrow that she wrote about was still alive, but it was getting close to the end of its life. I think it must have helped her write about the bird as she was so devoted to it, and she said she wanted to keep a faithful record and to avoid exaggeration. Kips described herself as a bird lover. She told of how, when she was born, a magpie tapped on the window as she entered the world. Her mother, who had a horror of magpies, thought it an ill omen, and it was for her mother, who died three days later. Kips said a lover of wildlife. She wanted to recall the story of a sparrow she rescued. As she says in the book, not as a pet, but as an intimate friend extending over many years, a friendship between a human and a bird. Kipps thought that the tiny chick that she found on her doorstep on the 1st of July 1940 was flung out of its nest by its parents as it was faulty in foot and wing. If left in the wild it would stand no chance of survival. The 1st of July was dull and chilly for the time of year. Claire Kipps was a professional musician, although it was when she was returning from her day's duty as an air raid warden when she found the little creature on her doorstep. She described it as blind, goggle-eyed and apparently lifeless. Claire's husband had died just two weeks before, in mid-June 1940. Kipps wrapped the creature in a warm flannel and tried for several hours to revive it. Very carefully she managed to open its soft beak and propped it open with part of a spent match. In every few minutes she put a drop of warm milk in its mouth. At the end of half an hour she noticed a slight movement of a tiny wing. She added soaked bread to the last feed and put the, bed, uh, the bird into a small pudding bowl lined with wool which she then put in the airing cupboard. Kip said that she expected the tiny creature to die during the night but to her astonishment, the next morning, she said she heard a thin but happy sound coming from the airing cupboard. On a similar note, BBC's Radio 4's Tweet of the Day about a house sparrow told the story of Sparky, who was a newly hatched baby sparrow saved and brought up by Alex Gregory, an Olympic gold medalist. He brought Sparky up on scrambled egg. She lived in his garden when an adult and when he went out in the garden and called her name, she would fly down and sit on his shoulder. Kipps said that her sparrow needed constant feeding. When she went on air raid duty, she would have to take the fledgling sparrow with her. The bird was fed on soaked bread mixed with BMAX, which was a wheat germ, hard-boiled egg, and the occasional drop of halibut oil, gently pushed down its gullet with a spent match, with its end fashioned to a point. On its third day, the eyes opened and the chick, who had never seen a bird, accepted Claire Kipps as his natural guardian. The feathers tended to grow throughout the night and it slept in a fur-lined glove placed on Kipps's pillow in her bed. Waking her at dawn for its first feed by chirping loudly and pulling at her hair. Claire's intention was to set the bird free as soon as it was able to fly and feed itself. However, as the wing feathers developed, it was clear that the bird would never be able to fry, uh, fly freely and be able to survive in the wild. The left foot was faulty, with a deformed and curled hind toe. The bird was originally called Clarissa, 
as it had been mistakenly thought a hen, but after its first molt it was shown by its plumage that it was a male, so she called him Clarence, although the only name he would respond to was Boy. As soon as Clarence was able to feed himself, he was left at home shut in a room with a food and milk in each corner when Claire left for work. He soon was able to recognise Kipps's voice, and he would start his welcome as soon as he heard the sound of the key in the lock. The moment she opened the door of his room, there would be a rush of flying feet, and he would scramble up her leg onto her shoulder, chattering excitedly before tucking himself under her chin or just inside her collar. When left alone in the house, Clarence seemed quite content. At night he would sleep in a bed with Claire, snuggling under the eiderdown. Kipps said that he would always keep the bed clean. He would leave the bed if he needed to pass something through, and then drop down again for another snooze. Kipps said that she never tried to house-train her sparrow. There was an inborn instinct to never defile its nest. Clarence liked to lie on his back with his feet in the air. Kipps said that there was a complete absence of fear when they were together, a confidence in her that never failed him in the years they were together. If he wanted to be picked up, he would crouch on the floor, lift his wings, chirrup, to be lifted from the floor. Clarence was very defensive and would make dreadful scene if a stranger entered his world. Claire said that she realised that for his safety, Clarence needed a cage, especially when others were about. She tried alternatives such as making a tree stand, but Clarence did not approve. A large roomy uh, cage was purchased, and Clarence seemed very fond of it. Most days started with the cover being taken from the cage, and Clarence would climb into bed to share tea and toast. He loved to drink milk from a teaspoon. After breakfast came the morning scrap. Claire would sit on one end of the bed, the sparrow at the other, and he would rush at her, tail spread and wings outstretched. He would peck, pinch, tumble and scold, as sparrows do in the wild, until Claire said sternly, Now that is enough, and he would simmer down. That was the only time of day when there would be a fight between them, although Claire's visitors would be attacked whenever they annoyed him. Claire said that when Clarence reached the age of three months, she added more variety to his food hemp seed, lettuce, apples and biscuits. Later, canary seed when it was available. There was a war on and most things were rationed. He would also eat small morsels of meat and fish, Dover sole and salmon being favourite. During the days of the Blitz, the bombing in the UK between uh, 1940 and 1941, Kipps and Clarence were bombed out of their bungalow in September 1940. The bird had a lucky escape, as he was only the only undamaged thing in the house, according to Kipps. His cage had been staved in, and broken glass was everywhere, but Clarence was unperturbed. When the guns roared and the earth shook, he swayed in his swing in his cage until all was calm again. Kipps had to take refuge in a large house nearby, also damaged, and was joined there by relatives of her late husband, who were also bombed out. Life became rather anxious as they brought a cat with them, and Clarence's life did not have the freedom he once enjoyed. There was a close encounter with a cat recorded in the book. 
However, it was during this period that Clarence was said to have become locally famous. He would entertain groups of people at breast centres during the Blitz, especially children, as Claire had taught him a few tricks with his favourite toys. Amongst these tricks was a tug of war with a hairpin, or choosing cards from a pack, which he would then turn around and around. This was a self-taught trick. He would replace matches from a box uh, to the accompaniment of a small music box. Clarence, as the children called him, could turn a patient's card around ten times in his beak without dropping it. Pantomime playing the flute on a matchstick and performing the air raid shelter trick, whereby Claire would cup her hands and say, Siren sounding, and he would seek shelter and would sit motionless for several minutes before poking his head out to see if all was clear. He also did a Hitler impersonation. When he would sit on a tin mug, he would raise one wing in the air to give a Nazi salute while he babbled and chirped away as if giving a ranting speech. Claire said years later that she would hear about strangers reminiscing about the performing sparrow they had seen during the war. Claire said that she did not approve of exploitation of creatures for human entertainment when it was at variance with their nature and inclination. Clarence's little tricks showed his intelligence and they were really just the development of his natural instincts. He enjoyed performing them and he was never made to learn anything against his will. Although Clarence lived during the five years of the Second World War, little reference is made to it in the book, although there are a couple of mentions when the war's events intruded into his life. There was one particularly fraught night spent when one night making her way home from a children's party while carrying Clarence in a small felt-lined box with a perforated lid, that was his travelling carriage, Claire's torch went out and she lost her way and she fell into a bomb crater. She called repeatedly for help but there was no one until dawn broke. She had to stand in the slime in water that reached her knees until she was rescued with Clarence, who seemed asleep through the whole incident. It was in the spring of 1941 when Clarence grew tired of the glamour of his public life and he became shy and unwilling to entertain. He also developed a habit of pinching people's hands which caused Claire to stop taking him to perform at posts, rest centres and children's parties. She said that it was best that he retired whilst at the height of his powers and if there was a television at the time, if it was possible, she was sure that he would have become nationally famous. But now he stayed at home when Claire went to work. Clarence would amuse himself with toys and food whilst Claire was out. She provided him with a great variety of playthings, but the only ones that ever really appealed to him were his hairpins, patient cards and matches, which he would carry about in his cage. When the family and cat moved away, Claire had the house to herself again and could spend more time with Clarence, and when she was on the piano he would join in with her singing. Claire said that the sounds that he uttered were not the usual sound of a sparrow. He seemed to have a much greater range. When she played the upper register of the piano, he would sometimes break into full song, Chopin being a particular favourite. Clarence's song would be in two sections, quite distinct from each other, and sometimes sung separately. 
The first part, or the introduction, was an expression of pleasure, good humour, and a simple joy de verve. But the second, the real song, was an outpouring of rapture. Both parts were usually in the key of F major. One of Claire's regrets is she never recorded Clarence's song. Kipps goes into great detail about the song and wrote part of it down in music form in the book. Claire introduced Clarence to other birds, such as trilling canaries, but she said he would ignore them and remain silent until they left. She thought that he was concerned solely with the development of his own particular talent. She said that her sparrow sang because he, she played and because he knew that he was loved. She thought that Clarence reached the peak of his musical career between his fifth and sixth years, by which time he was managing to fly across a room despite his deformed wing. Kipps has made a close study of Clarence and made a number of observations. Clarence had spent the first four years of his life perched or playing on a windowsill, but had shown no interest in life outside. But when she started to leave his cage on the window ledge outside, he became aware of the bird life that chirped and fluttered near him. His new intimacy with wild birds changed him in some ways. She thought that by some mysterious way they taught him fear. For example, the sight of a cat which in the past would he would have found indifferent now seemed to fill him with terror. Birds tried to make contact with Clarence. Claire said there was a blue tit that would tap on the window to attract his attention and if the window was open she would, uh, the bird would fly in and would perch on the roof of the cage quivering her wings. Claire claimed this went on for three seasons three years I take that to mean, which seems quite extraordinary to me. Amongst other developments that she considered curious in Clarence's behaviour was that he learnt from wild visitors how to catch insects on the window panes. This she thought remarkable because he'd never tasted insect food and had always been indifferent to them, and now he hunted them with skill and devoured them intensely. On the occasion when wild sparrows were brought to Claire after being rescued, and she cared for them until they died or she managed to release them, she said that Clarence would sulk and show resentment towards both her and the intruder. She said that she dared not leave Clarence alone with the bird. A recommendation from Kipps was a book called Birds as Individuals by Miss Len Howard, which claimed that there were outstanding personalities to be found in every species, originals, pioneers and genius creatures that could change the habits of their species. In relation to this was another religious comment made by Clare, who said that mass production was never God's method of creation, and when man made it his in modern civilization, she thought it a sharp turn that would eventually lead to disaster. She then went on to give examples of differences in personalities that she'd found in birds of the same species. For Clare, Clarence was a special and very intelligent sparrow. Claire wrote that there was little of interest to record in Clarence's life after his sixth year. After his delayed adolescence, his character was formed and his life became comparatively uneventful and his habits and behaviour remained more or less uniform. Claire and Clarence moved again several times before the end of the war and whenever they travelled together by road or rail, Clarence sat quietly on his swing in the cage until they arrived at their destination. Claire said that she never knew a better traveller. They moved to the South Coast, a South Coast resort in 1943, 
where Claire continued her air raid warden duties and cared for her stepmother. It was here that they were visited by members of the Society for Natural History who were interested in Clarence. Claire said that she learnt from one of these distinguished people of the Society the story of nightingales that gave some misleading information saying that nightingales mate for life. They return to their partner on Resurrection Day, Easter Day, each year. Claire thought this so romantic that she included this false fact in her book. What is true is that nightingales are monogamous for each separate breeding season and in my experience nightingales return to the UK for mid-April, which is often rather late for Easter Day. Another wartime incident was during uh, 1943, when on a glorious summer's afternoon, Claire and Clarence were walking home from a tea party. Suddenly somebody shouted, Get down! And a low-flying raider swooped out of a cloud and started machine-gunning. She put the cage down and crouched over it. She said that was the last adventure of the war, as peace soon arrived and Claire was able to move back to London after her bungalow had been repaired. When she, well, when she and Clarence returned to his old home in Bromley, Clarence gave no sign that he was happy to return from his exile. He inspected the house, as he did with all the moves that he had made, but made no sign that he recognised the place. Up until he was eleven, Clarence had never known a moment's illness. He took a cold bath every day, even during the bitter winter of 1947. After he had a good splash in the bath, he would jump down Claire's neck to get warm. Soon after his eleventh birthday, he began to have trouble with his feet, falling from his perch at night. He would also have the occasional attacks of hysteria. There was a morning when he suffered a stroke which resulted in partial paralysis. And although he could still hop about and feed himself, he was lopsided and unsure of his balance and he seemed to have lost the use of his wings. Claire had to change the uh, Clarence's cage as he would insist on trying to climb up to his perch and swing in his cage, which was about three feet high. Although he uh, persisted with great courage to reach his usual perches, he would just fall down after a few minutes. Claire was told that wild birds fly high when they perceive danger flying to rooftops or high boughs to give them a great a greater security as they have a better view of any danger but when they can no longer reach these heights they know that the end is near claire was worried that clarence was straining his heart trying to get higher in the cage so she bought a low a long low cage which she described as his ground floor flat even after his move she felt that clarence was still failing so she sought the advice of a vet who specialised in birds. The vet prescribed medication for enteritis, stomach upsets, and this seemed to be a miracle cure. The drug was given that killed microorganisms in Clarence's intestine, and he expelled a mass that had accumulated in his gut. And after this he seemed to improve. But Claire said after this, it was just a bundle of bone and ragged feathers. But she pecked him up with a second miracle cure, with a teaspoonful of champagne each day. Clarence took his medicine without any fuss, and he slowly regrew his feathers and refound his lost energy. His sight that was also failing was also restored, and on Christmas Day that year, 
he was able to sit on Claire's arm and share in her Christmas dinner. There was also a lack of coordination, and he used to fall over on his back. He could not ride himself, but he would cheerfully call out to Claire to be set back on his feet. Clarence required occupational therapy, and he learned to jump like a frog so that he could right himself if he fell over, and he found that he was able to leap in the air from an inverted position, completing a somersault to come down the right way up. His perches were now fixed to the first bars of the cage. Diet was also played a, an important role in his recovery. In the place of eggs and lettuce, which were too astringent, he was given vitamins, wheat germ and cod liver oil. Grit was also important to top up his diet to help his digestion. Often sparrows eat the old mortar and brick walls to get grit in their stomachs. I myself once lived in a house where some parts of the mortar were much depleted as a result of this sparrow action. After his illness, Clarence became, became a more faithful companion. He seemed to go back to the days of his childhood. He became in, uninterested in the world outside, uh, and when he was lifted up to look at it, he gave no sign of recognition. The sight of sparrows quarrelling in the garden no longer roused him to a frenzy of excitement or a wish to join in. He seemed to remember none of the old interests, but he seemed happy with no regrets and it was said that Clarence never gave way to depression or despair. All day long, Claire said she listened to the sound of, he listened for the sound of her voice, and as long as he could hear it, he felt no fear. He was now unaware of his immediate surroundings. In the past, the rearrangement of furniture, or anything which he disapproved, would cause a flood of sparrow abuse and protest. Gone now was the proud look of and the despotic will, and in their place was a childlike acceptance. He would often crouch, half lifting his wings, pleading perpetually to be taken up and nursed. Into his twelfth year he could no longer perch or fly, and although he made great efforts to keep himself clean, he was not always successful, and he needed to be watched and tended constantly. But Clarence astonished the vet, who said he had never known a little bird put up such a fight against old age. In his opinion, a canary or budgie would have given up and died a long time ago. Clarence adjusted himself to his new situation, probably not remembering too much about his past life, and he enjoyed the activities and pleasures of life still available to him. Claire thought that he set a good example to those growing old, in that he did not struggle to perform those duties that came so easily when he was in his prime. She said that she learnt so much from the little bird, that would help her make her a more reasonable and contented and helpful if she was given the gift of old age. Claire was born in 1890 and was in her early 60s at this time. Claire thought that Clarence's intelligence seemed to increase as his physical powers declined. He became more adaptable. When Claire was away from the house now, she made Clarence a little tent in his cage out of an old army blanket. He had a carpet made so his crippled feet had some comfort. He was now using his feet like a hand to steady his feeding stations, which was thought to be a new use to a foot that was slowly wasting away. He also began a waddling walk, which was not normal for a sparrow. The point being that he showed intelligence for an old bird, finding solutions to his problems.
Clarence by now was living almost exclusively on a diet of soft fruit and strained vegetables. He slept at night with his head folded into his wing like a child in deep slumber, dreamless and full of rest and refreshment. Claire said she would hold him and watch him sleep, the sleep of the very young and the very old. She would then put him in his tent and he would not stir until 7am the next morning. Claire said what she missed most at this time was his song, as he never sang again after a stroke. She thought that this had wiped away his memory, a very experience between his childhood and the moment of his stroke. But he still chirped and carried on a conversation with her. She had no idea what he was talking about, but he behaved as, as if his tiny head contained the wisdom of the ages. This was the time of his Indian summer, of untroubled calm and life's battles over, his problems solved and his perplexities forgotten. It was at this time that Claire realised she had never taken photographs of Clarence, and so she made an appointment with a photographer to visit her house, which would be best for the bird, and to record Clarence. The photos taken were used to illustrate her book. She said they never showed Clarence what he was like in his pomp. They showed him tattered, dingy and draggled. It was the photograph at the front piece of the book that gave the book its name, as it showed Clarence looking at the pages of a book, a small devotional classic known as the Daily Light. The book had been chosen on the account of its size, being small, and it was chosen at random. After the photograph had been developed, Claire found the words that uh, his beak was pointing at. It said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge? Meaning that even an insignificant little sparrow is known to God. There were three photograph sessions with Clarence and during, during the spring of 1952. The little sparrow's sight was failing again and even champagne was not sufficient to bring it back. He was losing his figures, uh, feathers at an alarming rate and his doctor suggested a hormone tablet that may stimulate a new growth of feathers but thought it might be kinder to let nature take its course and not prong prolong his life beyond his ability to enjoy it. Claire said that she, he was still enjoying life and often sat with a hairpin in his beak like an old man with a pipe. She thought that when he did die she, he should be buried with a hairpin and so she embroidered a coat of arms for Clarence, embossed with a golden hairpin as a symbol of life. His life that was often astonishingly human and the two points of the hairpin were to symbolise courage and contentment. Clarence died on August the 23rd, 1952. He was almost blind, and although his hearing was still sharp, he was still too weak to stand, and his last few hours were spent in Claire's hand. At the end, he suddenly lifted his head and called to her in his old intimate way, and then he was gone. He lived for 12 years, 7 weeks and 4 days. In Claire's final assessment of Clarence, his character except for his fierce temper and jealousies, were without fault. He was never destructive and never greedy, although always ready to be fed. He was an opportunist as all sparrows were, yet he never stole or helped himself to anything not offered to him. He was neither cunning nor deceitful. He had none of the hesitancy of the canary or the deliberation of the budgerigar. He was gay, eager and impulsive. He knew exactly what he wanted and was not easily turned from his purpose. He had the ability to adapt himself to all circumstances, his courage, 
His cheerfulness, even in illness and infirmity, were never failed. In his intelligence, Claire thought that Clarence was not outstanding. She had known cleverer birds, but his ability to thrive and keep his wild nature and communicate his needs and wants made him unique. Claire finished writing her book four months before Clarence died. She said he was sitting on her wrist, chirping happily, as she finished writing the book of his life. She said that she thought that he knew nothing of the future and cared only for the moment if he was with her. Clarence's remains were described as a tiny morsel of tattered feathers were buried in Clare's garden at 21 Welbeck Avenue, Bromley, London. She had a memorial commissioned in Hoppinwood Stone which read, Clarence, the famous and beloved sparrow, born the 1st of July 1940, died August the 23rd 1952. There's a line drawing of this in the book which I'll put on the Facebook site. Um, a few months after the death of Clarence, Claire adopted another wounded sparrow who she named Timmy. Timmy was more gregarious and quarrelsome than Clarence. Timmy also learnt tricks. His famous trick was his church trick, when Claire would give a bird would give the bird a coin to give to the vicar. Timmy would take the coin behind a photo frame and place it in an ashtray. Timmy became the subject of a second book by Claire, called Timmy, the Story of a Sparrow, that was published in 1962. There are still those who remember visiting Claire's bungalow in the 1950s and 60s. One woman, called Anne, would give sixpence to Timmy, who would put it on a bookshelf. And she remembered the memorial to Clarence in the garden but said it was cleared away by new owners after Claire died. She recalled Claire walking up Welbeck Avenue with her long coat, her walking stick and her wide-brimmed hat, 1940-style, she said. She travelled to India in her younger days and obtained a pet mongoose, about which she also wrote. It's thought that Claire may be buried in Plaisto Cemetery at Burnt Ash Lane in London. Well, a quick note on the house sparrows. They were introduced to the USA in the spring of 1951 by Nicholas Pike, who introduced 16 pairs of house sparrows to New York. They spread very quickly, and around the same time they were introduced to Australia. As they often live close in close association with man in the wild, then there are so many dangers that a bird does well to live to two or three years, and the infant, infant mortality rate in wild sparrows is huge. Birds living in captivity live longer. They tend to avoid predation and starvation and collisions with cars and windows and the like. The longest lived recorded house sparrow was 15 years and 9 months. The oldest recorded bird in captivity is thought to have been Cookie, a cockatoo that lived in Illinois Zoo up until the age of 82. The oldest recorded bird in the wild is an albatross who, as we speak, is 74 and still breeding at the present time. Well, I hope you enjoy the story of Clarence. Um, I'd like to wish everybody a happy Christmas, if you are listening to it today, the day of its broadcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for the background music. Until next time, I will say goodbye.